could hardly believe how sticky it was this morning when I walked out to the car. But we are great complainers. Too hot in the summer, too cold in the winter. But that's what we live with. So I trust everyone's well this morning. I continue to remember those. We have a number that are away, vacationing, enjoying themselves, recharging their own batteries. Um, we will have this week in the bulletin the name of the one uh, young man who turned 18 from the second family. Um, he's not able to join them coming to Canada. Uh, so we want to, uh, his name slips my mind right now. We want to continue to pray for him and uh, his safety and uh, for peace in Ukraine and that that war will soon end. But we're going to continue where we were in Matthew, uh, salt light. Anyhow, I want to talk this morning about salt and light in Matthew chapter uh, 5, if you'll join me there, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 16. Years ago, uh, Rebecca Manley Pippert, author of Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, uh, written back in, I believe, 1979. More recently, he has, she has written a book called Stay Salty. She tells a story of uh, driving in the early 80s down a road. She had her windows rolled down. Remember that old type of air conditioning? And um, as she drove down, she came to a traffic light, and she stopped at the light. And uh, you know how when you stop at a traffic light, you get a sense that somebody's looking at you? Come, we all do it, right? So she's at a light, she stopped, and she's like, I think someone's looking at me. So she looks over, and sure enough, there is a woman in the other car staring over at her. And as she looks at her, she thinks, wow, she looks like she knows me. I have no idea who she is. So she turns her attention back to the traffic light, and as the traffic light goes from red to green, she slides her foot off the brake and over to the accelerator, when in her, out of the side of her eye, in the corner, her peripheral vision, she sees a paper flying towards her car. Hits her in the face, and it smarts a little bit. She reaches down, she picks it up and turns it over, and it's a gospel track. The woman in the other car wasn't staring at her like she knew her. The woman in the other car was staring, judging the angle and the force to which she needed to throw the gospel track from her car to the other car. Well, when Christ in Matthew 15 talked about living as salt and light in our world, that's not what he had in mind. Throwing tracks at people in cars. Uh, as we continue in our series this morning, we're going to hit some very practical stuff. Our last uh, ended in the Beatitudes, and now we're going to move on to where Christ really talks about some stuff that is more than just characteristics in our lives, but stuff that you and I run into every day in our lives. So if you're not there already, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. But before we begin and read, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the practicality of it. Father, we thank you that we can gather around and just take some time to study together. And as we look at your word this morning, uh, life has a way of crowding our thoughts and creeping into our minds of things that happened in the past week and things that need to take place this afternoon or tomorrow or, or later this week. Uh, may we push all those aside just to focus on this time together and on your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now remember, these verses come with a context. They're not just there by themselves. The context is from a sermon. The sermon recorded for us in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And the sermon began by describing characteristics of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, of Jesus' kingdom. Now, in the port, we know that as the Beatitudes. That section ends, though, with a warning. Verse 11, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. So Jesus says, if you follow me, if you live like this, you will be persecuted. Your life's not going to go as smoothly as you think it's going to go. Not everyone's going to like you. And just so you know, some people are going to tell lies about you. Some people are going to tell lies about your character and what you're like because you follow me. What's the natural response to persecution? When, when, when stressors come in our lives, there are two responses. In psychology and counseling, they call it the flight or fight response. And for many of us, we might gravitate, gravitate towards that flight response, to retreat. Not many people like confrontation. Avoidance, well, that's the path of least resistance, and many of us take it. The urge to become insular has proven to be a great, great temptation for some. Even some churches. When we think of churches that have isolated themselves, we often think of, oh, okay, yeah, I know churches that isolate themselves. We're talking Old Order Mennonite, maybe Amish. No, I, I think it's greater than that. I want to suggest that it's broader. See, many in Christendom have ceased any meaningful engagement with the community around themselves. They've just stopped that type of engagement. There are churches out there that define success by their church calendar. Is it full? There's something every night of the week for everybody in the church. That's a successful church to some. They have become program-oriented and not missional in their ministries. Opportunities to interact with the community are non-existent because they're always at church. Well, individually, we can isolate ourselves too. We can have a Christian financial planner, a Christian doctor, a Christian mechanic. We can go to a Christian car owned by a car dealership, owned by a Christian, or at least have a, a salesman that's a believer. We can put our kids in Christian sports leagues. 
all our children in just church activities. You get the idea. Church becomes a retreat center, a, a, a safe haven from the world around us. Now, none of these things are necessarily wrong. However, if you are intentionally cutting yourself off from the world, I want to suggest that that's wrong. We are not called to cut ourselves off from the world. Now, the opposite response to this is, the, is to, to flight is, is to fight, to pick up arms and to wage war with anyone that crosses your path. Everything becomes a boycott, a fight, and an opportunity to confront the evils of the world. The response is exemplified in those churches that protest funerals and festivals and just protest. They always seem to be angry. They're the ones that have the street preachers that just scream at people, that go to different churches and even call evangelical churches evil because they don't believe just exactly as they do. Our call is neither to flight or to fight or is our call to give flight. Rather, we are called to engage the culture. The problem is that engaging the culture around us takes a lot of work. Engaging the culture around us takes a lot of understanding to what's going on in the culture around us, and it comes with risks. It comes with risks of persecution, but it also comes with risks of other believers misunderstanding us, and heaven forbid you being called worldly. See what they're doing? It comes with risk, but we are still called to engage the world around us. Beginning in verse 13, Jesus sets out three illustrations to help us understand this concept of engagement. Verse 13 again, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the salt of the earth. Not the warriors to slay our personal giants or the evil forces of the world, nor are we called to run for the hills and to live in seclusion. Christ intends for us, for you and I, to be a blessing to the world around us. So what do we know about salt? Sodium chloride. It's official title. None of us use that, though. Pass the sodium chloride, please. One I don't have down here is salt was um, valuable for many reasons. Some of them we're going to talk about. But it was so valuable, you hear the saying, worth your salt. That comes back from Roman soldiers sometimes were paid for salt. So to be salt as believers, we could go down that path of the concept of how valuable we are to this world. But I want to talk about three others that I came up with. Salt makes you thirsty. Salt adds flavor. Salt is a preservative. First, salt makes you thirsty. William Hendrickson stated this, Ever so many people who never read the Bible are constantly reading us. So when people look at our lives, do we solicit any reaction when we engage in the world? The idea is that as people read our lives and watch what we do, do we make them thirsty for more? Do we make them thirsty for Jesus? 
Now we have to admit, some will be attracted to our life and our lifestyle and what we do and how we engage the world around us, and others may strike out against us. But just because there's a reality of a possibility of persecution, we still need to engage. But that also doesn't excuse behavior that encourages persecution. Inviting persecution by our actions is not a virtue. There is no badge when you get to heaven for irritating unbelievers and not being kind to them. And remember, how you treat unbelievers around you, if you're unkind to them and you're nasty, there's collateral damage to that. Collateral damage is that when another believer comes along, we're automatically treated in the same category. There are no badges just for ticking people off. So how do we live? How is your life lived? Does it create a thirst or does it create problems for others, unnecessarily turning people off of the Lord? Second, salt adds flavor. Simply those who are called to Jesus Christ and as Him as Savior and Lord we should have a positive effect on the world around us. Is the world a better place because you exist? Is your neighborhood a better neighborhood because you live there? Years ago, I sat through a seminar, and the person that taught the seminar talked about basement people and balcony people. And balcony people are those that when they come in a room, they just fill it with joy. They, they, they fill it with just this great sense that you, you feel valued when they talk with you. It's, it's just a room of joy and love. And you are better. They, they lift that room up, and you are better just for knowing, knowing that person. We all know people like that. When they enter a room, it's just, wow. They're here. That's great. But then there's basement people. Well, a balcony person fills a room. A basement person clears a room. We all know that type of person. They're crabby, complainy, confrontational. They're also the Eeyores of the world. You know that old gloomy gray donkey from Winnie the Pooh? Believers in Christ should add to the world around them. Is your neighborhood better because you live there? Unfortunately, in the response to this call, some churches overemphasize aspects of the gospel. So they take an overemphasis on the social gospel at the expense of good teaching. And... On the other side of the coin, there are churches who have abandoned their social responsibility, insulating the congregation in an attempt to preserve pure doctrine. The, the dichotomy is a false one. Community engagement and biblical teaching can and should live side by side. Histories recorded for us whole denominations that have slipped away from biblical teaching out of love for their fellow man. But this is a false love because they've removed Christ from the equation. 
you can still minister to the world and engage them and hold to the fact that people need to repent of their sin. To say otherwise is a misrepresentation of God's love for the sinner. It's true that God loves the sinner, but that's the whole reason he sent Jesus Christ was to die on the cross to save them. Love for people does not demand gutting doctrinal purity. The late Dr. James Kennedy of Coral Ridge Ministries wrote a book, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? The book traces the impact good Christians have had on our world through the centuries. It talks about music. It talks about science. The book talks about hospitals built, medical discoveries, the fight to free slaves. It talks about education. It goes on and on. You and I are called to engage and impact the world around us. So this naturally leads to a few questions. Is the town of Forest, the townships of Lambton Shores, Plimpton, Wyoming, and Warwick, better off because of Forest Baptist Church? Does the body of believers at Forest Baptist Church flavor these communities? Do people even know FBC exists? So do, do you and I flavor this region along the shores of Lake Huron? When dealing with people from the church who call this home, when people deal with us, do we leave a, a, a good taste or a bitter taste with them? How do we flavor the community we live in? Oliver Wendell Holmes was a, a junior, was a member of the U.S. Supreme Court for 30 years. When he was asked about his career choices, he said this, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I know had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. Third, salt is a preservative. To keep meat and fish from decaying, before the era of refrigeration and ice boxes, everything was salted. Salt was prized for its ability to preserve more than it was prized for its flavoring. The call to the believer is to slow down the moral decay in the world around us. The role of the believer is to have a positive influence, to be a moral conscience, and this can only happen when you and I step out of our comfort zones and we engage. And it's not easy. Apart from God, the world is spiritually rotten. It's decaying. It's the presence of the church in the world, and more specifically, the work of the Spirit of God through the church that literally keeps the world and all hell from busting loose. Retreat is not an option. I know it's difficult. And I know we face a myriad of things that some of us don't understand. The attack on gender, the attack on sexuality, all of those things. But we are called to engage. Our community is in need of godly men and women to be volunteers at schools, 
coach sports teams, sit on library boards and on garden clubs and at food banks to wisely engage the community at large. Finally, the verse ends on an odd note. Salt is a stable compound. It doesn't go bad. There's no best before date. Go check your salt at home. If it's pure salt, there is no best before date. We mine it out of the ground all the time. It's been there for centuries. So how does salt go bad? Well, the salt from the Dead Sea and the marshes around Israel was contaminated. It would have a high content of gypsum and other minerals in it. So over time, that leads to a little bit of leaching of the quality of the salt. And in that, it becomes flat, tasteless, and also ineffective as a preservative. So at that point, it's only good for a footpath to be thrown down, to kind of keep the weeds down as best as possible, and to harden the path. Matter of fact, as recently as in the 1960s in Israel, when salt would go that way and flat, they would take it up to their rooftops of some of those rural homes, toss it on the dirt roof to harden the soil and to prevent it from leaking. And what would happen on the roof of some of these homes? Children would go and play. In the evenings, they'd have social gatherings on their roof. Interesting that salt was still trodden underfoot. In his commentary on Matthew, R.V.G. Tasker, a British New Testament professor, wrote this. The point is that if Jesus' disciples are to act as preservatives in the world by confronting, by conforming to kingdom norms, if they are called to be a moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing, or non-existent, they can discharge this function only if they themselves retain their virtue. It's clear that you and I as believers, to remain effective, need to remain pure from impurities in our lives. We need to purge them out. I admit, I'm really bothered when I hear and meet believers and pastors who are muddled up in shady financial dealings. I'm bothered when I hear of people in ministry that are there for greed or people that volunteer in a church for power. It bothers me to see abusive power structures in a church. It bothers me to see how church, some churches treat women, wrongly apply Scripture. It bothers me when mental health is ignored. It bothers me when we discover sexual abuse. It bothers me when Scripture is improperly applied all for one person's benefit. Legalism drives me nuts. Setting up regulations outside of Scripture and imposing them on others because of a weakness we may have and precautions we may need to take in our lives. When the church ceases to become a gathering of God's people following Jesus Christ, it becomes a cult. The second illustration could be found in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. See, the exact location of the Sermon on the Mount is, is really unknown. 
Some people believe that it was on a, a, a mountain behind Capernaum. Uh, it's actually a large hill. Um, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And that from there, they could see down to Tiberias. But we don't know where it was. Was it, was it Galilee, where it talks, where Christ was going and preaching and doing his ministries? Very large. So it could have been this hill that people traditionally point to. And so when he spoke of this hill... He may have been alluding further down the coastline, which they might have been able to see. The port of Tiberias and in the, the fishing port had the, the fishing industry at the bottom and the homes at the top of the hill. Or perhaps it may have been a, a, a thought towards Safed, Israel. The town of Safed sits 900 meters above sea level. For those of us in the old school, that's about 3,000 feet. It's only about a three-hour walk from Capernaum. And it could be seen for kilometers it sat so high. Even further at night. When you think that people would lamp, light lamps and stick them in their homes, the visibility as those lamps illuminated the homes and the windows and the sky around, you'd be able to see that city very easily. Possibly the whole thing denotes two concepts. First, that as Christ followers, we are to be visible and we are to be radiant. The main emphasis, though, here is concealment. Your faith should not be a secret. Your faith should not be concealed. Your faith should be seen. When people say your religion is private, that's another thing that drives me nuts, they obviously, you're going to think I'm cranky and everything drives me insane. When people say their religion is private, they've not read this passage. They've not understood it. We are to live our lives before God publicly. Jesus also calls them the light of the world. It's a terminology he uses many times in the New Testament. In John chapter 8, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 through to 11, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as the children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. See, the true light is Christ, is Jesus Christ. So if we need to think in terms of, of the moon, especially a full moon, and there's apparently a full moon coming this week, we think of a full moon. The moon itself has no light. It simply reflects the light from our sun. That is such a great illustration. We have no light of ourselves you and I are to illuminate the light of Christ in our lives to a dark world around us. The use of light continues in verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. The emphasis again is concealment. The basket is a reference to a measure. It's like a bowl. 
um, and it was used to measure out grain. So it was nine liters or eight quarts. So it's, it's a fair-sized bowl. And, and the concept here is that no one lights a lamp, and it would have been like one of those terracotta lamps. You know, you've all seen them, or both, both sides of my two hands put together with the oil and the wick on it. No one lights one of those and then immediately puts a bowl over it. Because what's going to happen? The wick's going to go out. There's no oxygen for it. So that's absurd. Who would do that? The light would be snuffed out. No one would benefit from it. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but I find Christ's words here very, very interesting. It would be ridiculous to light a lamp to only put it out, but rather it's put on a lampstand to do what? To illuminate, to give light to those in the household. I think Christ chose words specifically for a reason. First, it was a city on a hill to illuminate over the valley and so everybody would see it, so it was very public. Now we move into a house to illuminate a household. Now, I want to acknowledge, as children grow into adults, they have to make their own decisions regarding faith. However, how many have walked away from the Lord, from the church, because the light never shone in their home? How many home had parents that the children saw as hypocrites, unloving, overcritical, too strict, or no rules at all? Where the love of Christ, where the flavor of Jesus never entered the home. How sad is that? I think the evangelical church in Canada needs to examine itself carefully, asking some very tough questions. Why do and why did so many of our children who were supposed to have grown up in homes that illuminated the way to Jesus Christ reject that same Jesus? Was there no light in the home? Was there no flavor of Christ in that home? Had the salt lost its flavor? See, your home should be a refuge, a refuge for your family. Moms and dads, your home should be a place that's safe for the kids to come. It should be welcoming. It should be a refuge from a dark, dark world. This should be true for your children finding your home to be welcoming. This should be true for your spouse. Husbands, your wife should find your home inviting. Your wife should find your home a safe place to be, free of abuse and free of ridicule, a home where she feels valued. Wives, same for your husband. Your children and your neighbors are watching. The home should be a beacon of light to the world around us. I can honestly say I have always enjoyed going home. At the end of a day, whether I'm here or whether whatever job I've had or wherever I've been, I've always looked forward to going home. I always have felt welcomed to go home. It's one of the highlights of my day is returning home. I can also say I rejoice in the times when other children in the neighborhood wanted to be in our home, when they wanted to be in our yard, 
when they would gather around the front porch when we're out or whether they'd gather in our backyard and play with our kids. But I also can grieve at times when maybe I didn't live up to that, when I raised my voice or did something that I shouldn't have. Verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The New Living states it this way, In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone praises your Heavenly Father. So how does your light shine? Faith in action. That's what good deeds are. James, the brother of Christ, addresses this in his letter. James 1.27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And again, in the second chapter, 14 through 18, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. R.T. France said this in his commentary on Matthew. But the aim of this good works is not to parade his own virtue but to direct attention to the God who inspired them. By doing so, the disciple will give light to all. See, our good deeds are to influence the world around us, to make it a better place. The good we do is, is not to be self-serving, but it is to illuminate who Jesus is. It's to illuminate who our Father is. Now, I get there's a two-edged sword here. As you engage, and as I engage in the world, it may create persecution. It will create attention. The reality of that should not deter us from engaging and from doing good works. Our call is to boldly engage our community. Our call is to be a beacon, a light to a spiritually dark world to bring glory to God. And that can be confusing. Persecution will come. And sometimes persecution comes and God allows it and it's like he's tipping over the salt shaker and pouring us out so that we will end up bringing glory to him and ministering in places and shining that light in places that we would naturally not have gone to. There's illustration after illustration of this. Take some time to go over to the Voice of the Martyrs and as you see the persecution in places in the world you also find the gospel of Christ being poured out into the world and you can see story after story of how Christ uses persecution to share his love for a world around them. I also think of Richard Dawkins. If you don't know Richard Dawkins, he's the famed British biologist. He's part of this new aggressive atheist movement that's been around for a few years now, about two or three decades their goal, and they've been very open about this, is to rid the, rid the West of any remaining vestiges of Christianity, ushering in this utopia of intelligence. 
Well, in the last decade, Mr. Dawkins at times has played a different little bit of a tune on occasion. I quote, there is no Christians, as far as I know, blowing up buildings. I'm, I'm not aware of any Christian suicide bombers, and I'm not aware of any major denomination that believes the penalty for apostasy is death, he said. He admitted that he has mixed feelings concerning the decline in Christianity, the very thing that he fought against, because this faith-based group might just be the bulwark against something worse. That was recorded in Christianity Today in January 2013. More recently in his latest book, Outgrowing God, whether irrational or not, it does, unfortunately, seem plausible that if somebody sincerely believes God is watching his every move, he might be more likely to be good, he confessed. Begrudgingly, I must admit that I hate the idea. I want to believe that humans are better than that. I'd like to believe I'm honest whether anyone is watching or not. Well, this realization is not good enough reason for him to believe in God. Dawkins says he now realizes that the affirmation of God's existence does benefit society. For example, Dawkins admitted it might bring the crime rate down. That was from a blog from Jonathan Van Maren, Bridgehead. The basis for our good works, the basis for what we do is all rooted in the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 33 through 37, we read this. Jesus replied, You must love your Lord, the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. The world we live in is a dark place spiritually. Yes, by God's common grace, there are things that we all enjoy, and there are things that people who don't know Christ enjoy, but that is due to God's common grace. But it lacks soul satisfaction. Look at how many new theories there are. And these new theories to live by, whether it's critical race theory or whether it's the gender theory or whatever theory in the past or to come in the future, each is supposed to bring peace to humanity. Each is supposed to make humanity better. And each philosophy throughout the years comes up empty each time. Jesus asks us to go into a world to make disciples. And we do that by engaging the world, not by retreating and not by being overly belligerent, but by engaging, by inviting people into our homes, by going into their homes, by volunteering in our communities, by making our community better because we add salt, we flavor it, and we bring light. That's what you and I are called to. That's what it means to be salt and light. Is forest, is this region better because of this church? Do they know you exist? Is your neighborhood better for having you there? Or if you moved away, 
Who moved? Oh, oh, I think I saw them. That's not how it's supposed to be. We are asked to engage a world to do good deeds and to illuminate the Father in heaven through our good deeds. Why we do them? We do them to point the way to Christ and to honor the Father. That's why we do good deeds. That's why we are salt and light. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the vivid images found here in Matthew of being salt and light in a dark, dark world. Father, and as once again the world grasped with new philosophies and new ideas to bring a betterment to humanity, they still lack an understanding of what the gospel is all about. They still lack the understanding that if they would just submit, they would find life and life abundantly in you. Father, help us in all that we do to point towards Christ, that we might be a light in our communities, and that most of all, Father, that not only in this church, but in churches across our land that claim to follow you, that will be lights in our homes, that our homes will be flavored. Father, we pray this morning for children who have moved out from home and who don't follow you anymore. Our hearts grieve for these children, these now young adults and middle-aged adults who have walked away. Father, give us the opportunity to minister again into the lives of those around us that knew us so intimately and lived underneath our roofs. And Father, may our light and flavoring of our home, may it be known in our neighborhood. May people know and interact. May we engage. And Father, help us not to be afraid. There's always a new philosophy and a new thought. Help us to be wise in gaining an understanding of how to engage this culture that we live in. Things have changed so fast and it's so different and we need your mercy and wisdom to learn how to engage properly. But most of all, to know the truth and be able to point people to Jesus Christ where they can find soul satisfaction, where they can find what they're really chasing after and, and, and they, really, they don't realize it yet. So, Father, we thank you for your word, for the opportunity to gather together this morning. In Christ's name, amen.